You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The leather-bound volume was nothing remarkable. To an ordinary historian, it would have looked no different from hundreds of other manuscripts in Oxford's Bodleian Library, ancient and worn. But I knew there was something odd about it from the moment I collected it. Duke Humphrey's reading room was deserted on this late September afternoon, and requests for library materials were filled quickly now that the summer crush of visiting scholars was over and the madness of the fall term had not yet begun. Even so, I was surprised when Sean stopped me at the call desk. Dr. Bishop, your manuscripts are up, he whispered, voice tinged with a touch of mischief. The front of his argyle sweater was streaked with the rusty traces of old leather bindings, and he brushed at it self-consciously. A lock of sandy hair tumbled over his forehead when he did. Thanks, I said, flashing him a grateful smile. I was flagrantly disregarding the rules limiting the number of books a scholar could call in a single day. Sean, who'd shared many a drink with me in the pink stuccoed pub across the street in our graduate student days, had been filling my requests without complaint for more than a week. And stop calling me Dr. Bishop. I always think you're talking to someone else. He grinned back and slid the manuscripts, all containing fine examples of alchemical illustrations from the Bodleian's collections, over his battered oak desk, each one tucked into a protective gray cardboard box. Oh, there's one more. Sean disappeared into the cage for a moment and returned with a thick, quarto-sized manuscript bound simply in mottled calfskin. He laid it on top of the pile and stooped to inspect it. The thin gold rims of his glasses sparked in the dim light provided by the old bronze reading lamp that was attached to a shelf. This one's not been called up for a while. I'll make a note that it needs to be boxed after you return it. Deborah Harkness teaches history at the University of Southern California. Her most recent scholarly work is The Jewel House, Elizabethan London and the Scientific Revolution. Her new novel is A Discovery of Witches. Thank you for speaking with me, Deborah. Thank you, Rick. It's nice to be here. Deborah, this book is so wonderful and unfolds in so many great ways. And what I like about it is the simplicity of the beginning, because from the very get-go, you give us a kind of interesting contrast what seems to be a very ordinary book. And the person who's checking it out, we realize very quickly, is not so ordinary at all. Tell us about creating Diana. When did this character first arrive in your heart and in your mind? Because there's a lot of both there. She arrived through her name. Uh, It actually was uh, a moment where I was trying to think about how a world could exist that contained the supernatural creatures that fill the book racks these days. And as a historian of science, a world has to have a certain logic and a certain uh, coherence to it. So I was populating an imaginary world with all the figures that I thought might be able to fill it. And one of them I knew would be witches. And her last name came first. Bishop is the last name of the first woman executed for witchcraft in Salem in 1692 here in the States. And then I knew that she needed to be the goddess of the hunt because she is someone who is very much on the hunt and looking for information. And it's a nice play 
in terms of her relationship with the uh, central male figure in the book, Matthew Claremont, who is himself a hunter. Now, uh, one of the things that I love about this book is the deep and really interesting and, I think, uh, utterly unique mythology you've created, the world building you've done. Talk about creating this world because you've done a great job of integrating two very different disciplines, history and science. And you've really worked out the biology of this, and that's what I totally love. So uh, when did you start design? Did you start designing this world before the story happened? No, the story came really out of nowhere. I was in Mexico on vacation in September. It was the rainy season. We couldn't go out much. I was in a hotel room a lot, and I started thinking about if there really were vampires, what would they do for a living? Who would their friends be? Where would they live? What would they do with their days, their years, their centuries? And that the world grew very organically. I would come to terms with one idea, like vampires would love to be scientists because it's a long-term career path. And then logically, then I needed to know what witches would be. And I thought, well, they'd be historians, holders of tradition. And then I thought, well, they can't be the only creatures. There must be others. And I thought, demons, these wonderful creatures who have a long history back into ancient Greece and Rome where they were guardian spirits and guiding spirits and then they became evil spirits and I thought that they need to be in there too and they'd be artists and rock stars and all of the crazy people in the world. And then I needed to think about humans and I thought, well, what do humans have to offer the world? And I thought, we're very good at the power of denial. And so then I went back and looked at the mythology through the eyes of a human to figure out, okay, if those are the stories humans tell about these creatures, what is it that they're trying to hide, to deny, to obscure? And that's how these three different supernatural creatures grew along with what I know about humans to fit into one well-integrated world that would explain why we may see someone across a crowded train platform and think, oh, they're really different. But before we let ourselves take in the implications of that, we say, oh, no, they're just, they're just a little strange and deny it. Let's talk about one of the first characters we meet in this world who's not even a person, and that's Oxford. How much time did you spend at Oxford? Tell us a little bit about your explorations of Oxford, and there's so much of Oxford in this book. Well, I really believe that places are characters, and I think that is true for the whole book. There's several places that I think function as characters. And Oxford is a a place that holds a very special spot in my heart. I first encountered it as a junior. In my junior summer, I went abroad for a program in Oxford and absolutely fell in love with it. It was such a wonderful place to be a student the age of the place, the resources. And then I went back to Oxford um, in the early 1990s when I was a Fulbright scholar to finish my dissertation research and lived there for um, well over a year, almost two years. And that's when I really got to know the city, um, really felt like I had come to know where every cobblestone was and where the weeds grew and what trees there were. And it's such a special place. I knew immediately that Diana needed to have gone to Oxford, which I did not do. I was a visiting scholar, so that was wish fulfillment. Um, And that I wanted that 
what I consider to be the most magical place in Oxford, the Bodleian Library, to also play a central role. Tell us about the Bodleian Library and, and the central role it plays in your time there and how the, it, one of the things I love about this book is it evokes the actual magic of books and libraries in history and scholarship and how important, how those are actually magical, have literally magical qualities. Mm-hmm. The Bodleian Library has a copy of basically every book that's been printed in England since the early 17th century. It receives a copy of every one of them. So literally, if you need a book, it's there somewhere. And the library includes private collections. It's beautiful architecturally. It has creaky wooden stairs, and it has high windows, and it has gargoyles. It's, if you close your eyes and imagine a library, you are imagining the Bodleian, even if you haven't actually been in one, if it's sort of an old world library. And I went there every single day, all day, and back again at night, and it was like a second home to me. And I think that's true of most of the scholars who actually work there. You know, we go, we spend long, intense periods of time there. We get to know the, the staff who are wonderful. We get to know the collections. But there's always something unexpected. This is something you learn in scholarship. You may think you know what you're doing. You may think you understand a text. You may think you know what the next book you open is going to say. And it doesn't. So books don't always behave like scholars want to. And so with this book, I think I was really drawing on that sense when I, when I created this enchanted book because, that, that has a, a reason to misbehave because so often that's what scholars feel when they open a book for the first time. Oh, no, this isn't what I thought it would be. This book is a, is a, a text of an alchemical text Mm -hmm. and there's lots of alchemy in this book Mm -hmm. and this is something I'm guessing you yourself have studied and alchemy is a really fascinating um, study because and I think we're coming back around to it it has elements of religion Mm -hmm. and elements of science and there's a whole new branch of neuroscience devoted to the study of the science of studying religion. And I feel like we're winding our way right back to alchemy. So tell mm-hmm. us about its origins. The alchemy uh, origins of alchemy are so far back in history that we don't actually have a good story to tell about where it comes from. It comes from very ancient civilizations. And really what it is is it's a whole way of looking at how the world is created and how nature changes. And it works on metaphors of growth and death and decay and the kind of belief that certain substances can be transformed and grow into other higher substances. So for the, you know, the the sort of uh, quick line for alchemy is, of course, somebody taking lead, which is a relatively humble metal, and growing it, changing it into gold, which is a very noble metal. Um, But it's also about, that stands in for the process of enlightenment, how you go from ignorance to enlightenment. It's alchemy posits that an alchemist cannot achieve that metallic transformation unless their spirit and intellect goes a long pace with it. The philosopher's stone supposedly makes you immortal. So it's about health and wellness. So it really was a, a very comprehensive 
theory about the world and how it worked that held sway over the minds and imaginations for literally thousands of years. And Newton was one of the great scientists who was fascinated by and practiced alchemy. So it is very tightly linked to what we consider to be the development of science. You're a historian, and I love the sense of history in this book, and this book, especially the history of science, mm -hmm. history as science, and history and science. So you, we get all three of these. I'd like you to talk about how much of your own personal scholarship uh, fed the fiction of this book. Well, I think that for me, I study a period where science and magic and religion really are intertwined in ways that you cannot separate them out. It wouldn't make sense to anyone that I study in the 16th century to think of science existing you know, in one bucket and religion in another and magic in another. So I went into the world that I created with that sort of early modern 16th century sensibility and tried to think, okay, what if my 16th century individuals were really right? What if there really are these creatures all around. And I think taking that seriously and really working with that idea and taking it um, into account, I think does make the book different than creating an imaginary world. I wanted to see if I could make it convincing that that 16th century concept of the universe might actually be true. You do a fabulous job, and it's so enjoyable as readers as we peel away the layers. And, and you know, that strikes me. One of the interesting things about this book is uh, the way you plot. You plot on a lot of different levels, and one of the levels that you plot on so well, that's, I think, the key, the core of really enjoying this book, is the plotting as revelation as we learn and go into this book. So talk about creating this book and as a series of revelations to the reader as we, we first meet a witch and then we meet um, other kinds of other creatures. And I, it's so interesting as we learn more and more. And that's really a driving force to the knowledge. You make scholarship, the reader's scholarship of this book is itself the plot driver. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what really the, the thrill of discovery, the thrill of gradually uncovering new information, having to reevaluate what you believe. I think often in fiction that's very rushed. It's rushed for dramatic punch and effect. And in a way in this book, I really did want it to slow down a little bit. This, the action in this book takes place over 40 days, just 40 days. And I wanted those days to feel real and natural in the, in the amount that you could learn and discover. I wasn't going for a kind of action thriller, although I think there are moments when it becomes uh, a little bit more of that. But for me, that process of discovery is so astonishing and something you cannot control. And I desperately wanted to get that on the page because I think it's not understood often how a scientist or a scholar works by one tiny discovery at a time until there's so much that you really have to sit up and take notice of it. You created this pantheon of creatures, but what makes the novel work is a cast, a large cast of unforgettable and really well-delineated characters 
many, most of them, not like you or I. Mm-hmm. So talk about mm-hmm. creating your characters. And <clears throat> uh, Diana has rapidly meets on her first day on day one of the the 40 days of uh, rain or (laughs) that's right (laughs) um she meets matthew claremont and he's a really fascinating character Mm -hmm. well with all of these characters i needed to it it really again was a, a process of figuring out okay what kind of person would diana be attracted to he would have to be smart he would have to be someone who challenged her in certain ways. She likes a challenge. So, and it would, he would have to be somebody who is somewhat patient with her desire to deny who she was, to hold sort of life at a distance. And so Matthew Claremont, uh, the vampire at scientist at the center of this book, needed to have those elements of his personality, but they needed to make sense, not with just in relationship to Diana, but in response to the whole rest of his life. So I figured out pretty early on that he had to have had other strong, intelligent women around him, Um, one of which is his mother, who you meet in this book, and she is a character. Uh, There is a a growing band of devoted fans of of Matthew's mother. Um, I knew that he would also need to have friends that he could really trust with his secrets, who would know him. So that character, Hamish Osborne, comes into being, um, somebody who can keep pace with him intellectually. But trust is hard for vampires. And so who would it, what would it take to get a vampire to trust you? And so each one of them really exists in a very um, definite, rounded, three-dimensional way for me. They needed to be whole, complete characters, not just little walk-on parts. And that was one of the greatest enjoyments in the book was actually the minor characters and I've been thrilled with readers that so many people say my favorite character is and they'll pick someone quite minor and say I love this character and I think for whatever reason that character speaks to them. There's a demon named Timothy who uh, likes to sit at computers and stare at the ceiling and he's always picking broken computers and he dismantles library equipment and it's just kind of a a problem to have around and Timothy has a loyal fan club too of people who say I feel just like Timothy when I deal with technology. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about the manuscript at the heart of this because it's certainly a, a character that we get to know a little bit about though or I hope we're going to find out much more. You will definitely find out much more. Uh, Ashmole 782 is the manuscript at the center of this book, and it is a manuscript that is real, and it's really missing. Really? Yes. That's, I, that, you know, that's a question that occurs early and often in this book. Is this real? So, And getting, it is. Getting back to, to, <laughs> to Oxford, is, is Matthew's Oxford layer real? He, he is a fellow at one of the most uh, exclusive, prestigious facilities at Oxford University, the real sort of the brain center of the mm. University All Souls College. And I've never been into the private rooms of All Souls. I've been into the library. I've been inside the confines of the college. So I had to sort of imagine it. And I had to imagine a wine cellar for him in the basement. I'm, I, but, but those were cre- creations of my imagination. Well, let's get back to Ashmole. It's really missing. It is. It is the uh, an, a manuscript that, in my own scholarship, I have called up and been told it was missing. And the title that appears in the book is the title that's in the catalog. 
and fits the story with an eerie kind of precise beauty. Oh, absolutely. Um, and uh, it, it is really missing. And, you know, books books at a library as old and large as the Bodleian go missing all the time. They can be misshelved. They can be miscatalogued. It could be have been miscategorized. It could have been a printed book and got moved and somebody forgot to take, you know, strike out the, the, the name. But it is one manuscript I have not myself been able to see. So again, that when I was looking for a manuscript, I thought, oh, I'm gonna make it a real missing manuscript just for fun, just for the fun of it. What the contents are purely imaginary, again, because I've never actually seen it. But the book is um, a very special book and it is uh, a book that is a palimpsest. And what a palimpsest is in terms of a manuscript is a book that once had a text on it that has been somehow obscured, either by erasing it, applying water to it, and then the pages have been reused for a new book. And so when Diana opens Ashmole 782, she can see that there's illustrations on the surface, but when she turns a single page, she can see that there's writing moving underneath the surface of the page. And often when you find a palimpsest, it is just a moment of a trick of the light that lets you see the hidden letters for just a minute. And then you think, did I imagine that? Or were they really there? And then you need all kinds of equipment to reveal it. Um, In the painting world, that's pentimento. Ah, that's right. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes. Now, um, tell us a little bit about some of the other books. This is, this is a book that takes joy in books. Is there a, a, an Aurora Consurgens? Yes, there is. And is that edition real? Uh, there are very few editions of the Aurora Consurgens. Um, the one that I've imagined that is in the possession of this vampire is unique because it contains more illustrations than the ones that are in existence do. The text that I quote from is my translation of the Latin text that is accompanies it. And the Aurora Consurgens talks about um, the transformation of the soul and the transformation of the material world very much in the terms of a romance between a male character and a female character between dark and light, between the sun and the moon. And so all of that imagery that's in the Aurora Consurgens, it's really a romance about the world. And it becomes a sort of a way of talking about the romance between Diana and Matthew as well. I, and I think you do a great job with this romance. It's the most chaste romance I've read in a long time. And I think, so talk about creating that romance and, and the keeping your characters real. And I think you do a great job of this, of, of adding more and more layers to the characters, particularly Matthew too, mm-hmm. because he has a long, not surprising, history. A very long history. When Matthew came into being, one of the things I knew was that he was not going to have been made after the American Civil War in more recent times. If I had time to play with as a historian, he was going to be old. And so he is born back uh, around the time 500. He becomes a vampire around 537. These were times of enormous change in Europe when Europe was becoming more Christian. He is himself um, a, a devout Catholic. And he is somebody who lived right through courtly love and through a different way of wooing women. And he really does feel like human beings today just rush things a little bit too much. 
So while he has enormous passion and devotion to this woman he's met, he also doesn't want anything to happen too precipitously. And he keeps reminding her about how little time they've actually known each other because also as a vampire, he's very, very cautious. He has a lot of secrets. He's shared very few of them with her up to this point. And, you know, he's being very respectful, I think, of her and trying to give them time to get to know each other. It's just that events overtake. Um, his need for slowness is sort of over, overwhelmed by their need to speed things up a little bit. So I also am playing with time in their relationship. She wants it to go faster. He wants it to go slower. The world has other ideas. Because I think when you're falling in love, that's how you often feel. You're, everything's a little out of joint in terms of time. And time itself is a is a character in this mm -hmm. book, and mm -hmm. with your long histories and the histories of your characters, and you play with time literally. Uh, so, as a and at one point, your one of your characters remarks that they have some problems with the physics mm -hmm. of the magic, mm -hmm. and I yeah. think that's a very interesting uh, notion. When and by the time you introduce us, by the time she says that. We buy it on both sides of the equation. We mm -hmm. understand where the magic's coming from, and we, but we also understand that the physics are important as well. Right, right. The whole, you know, it does, everything needs to make sense, and it needs to make sense, um, specifically, this, the story is told in the first person, so it really needs to make sense to Diana, uh, and it also needs to make sense to Matthew, the scientist. So you've got a historian who's a witch and a vampire who's a scientist, the vampire scientist is actually a lot more sympathetic to magic being in the world than the witch who's a historian who really wants there just to be logic and rationality. And so I am in playing with time and history and science and magic, these characters take surprising stances on the different aspects of the story. And that was one of the things that I, I enjoyed playing with, was not making their characters so in so coherent that it took some of that interesting tension out of out of the equation there are our politics in our world and there are politics in among the world of creatures and there are rules and mores mm -hmm. and morals and i think it's interesting the way you've developed the rules and morals and mores and and, and the way too that you've created the characters of the of the different kinds of creatures and you mm -hmm. call them creatures in the book mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that again I think we have a problem sometimes with um, people who strike us as different too creative Matthew says you know we're too strong we're too powerful we're too creative and I think we do as humans have a problem sometimes with individuals who have those traits and in the book, what happens is that um, because of a fear that humans are sort of on to this secret world living among them, a decision is made way back in the medieval period, back in the 12th century, f that really the creatures need to try to keep separate. There needs to be a kind of segregation because it, when they band together, it's so overwhelming to humans that humans can't deny it anymore. And uh, so I, there's a kind of self-imposed segregation for reasons of protection that, like many forms of segregation, devolves into hostility and enmity between species or creatures who 
no longer have any connection and don't really aren't making any effort to understand each other. So you have these sort of camps developing that then can look at each other as, as enemies rather than as friends. And I think that unfortunately rings true in our own modern world. So it was a way of thinking about the problems of difference and how, how they get started, what you need to overcome them. And really, Matthew and Diana are in a forbidden relationship. They are not supposed to be mixing with each other. Um, and they do it anyway. And there's some pretty disastrous consequences as a result. You know, I never, until this moment, thought of the Romeo and Juliet aspect of this. and But it's really there, isn't it? Yeah. I, the, the Montagues in, and the Capulets. <laughs> right. And for and the Montagues and the Capulets is a, you know, a family feud, Hatfields mm -hmm. and McCoys. But, but I think this is, um, this is, this is families upon families feuding. And so it's a little bit of a larger canvas than the beautiful, elegant story that Shakespeare told with, uh, with Romeo and Juliet. Which, of course, of the folio of which shows <laughs> in Matthew's library. Yes. How many of those books did you, did you, did you touch a Gutenberg Bible? I have not touched a Gutenberg Bible. I've been very close to a Gutenberg Bible, but I've never actually touched one. But no, um, filling Matthew's library, the only thing that was more fun than filling Matthew's wine cellar was filling Matthew's library and imagining the books that he would have held on to or would have been given to him by friends. Um, and so, you know, he... Diane at some point is looking for a Bible and he sends her over to the bookshelves and the Bible on a shelf is a Gutenberg Bible because he picked it up when it went on sale in 1450. When it, you know, who knew? Um, and then he kept it and she just refuses to use it as a reference book. She says, I can't do it. I just can't do it. So again, those, those are those moments where the historian and the scientist, the man who's lived for 1500 years, you, you can have a touch of humor, but it's also revealing about who they are what their priorities are, how they respond to the world. And I, I loved writing those sorts of moments and, and thinking about shaping their relationship through them. You're an award-winning writer of wine criticism, and you get to spend a lot of fun here. How much of the wine in this, in this work is fantasy, and, and how much have you seen, and how <laughs> much is fantasy, and how much is, have you drank? Uh, all of the wine in this book is pure fantasy. These, these bottles of wine that Matthew is drinking are so rare and so precious, and they represent a wine lover's dream bottles. Mm. So, you know, Chateau Margaux from 1900 is supposed to be the finest red wine ever made, and it's what he serves at his, <laughs> when he invites her over for dinner. Um, the the he he gives her a bottle of wine when uh, they have they go on their first date and it's from a very special vintage known as the Comet Vintage of 1811 where a comet passed over the vineyards and there was a lot of strange weather and they were worried they weren't going to get the harvest in and then a comet went over the vineyards and they thought it was an omen of good of a good harvest they were good, could relax and actually some of the bottles actually have a comet. Um, blow, you know, in the glass itself. So it was, it was so fun, again, to think of, for me, wine is about place, it's about history, it's about taste, and so for a vampire to drink an old wine, it takes them right back, they remember that moment, they remember when they bought it, they can taste amazing things in it, and I had so much fun fantasizing about what Chateau Ikem 
1811 Comet vintage wine would actually taste like. And if you have a bottle, if you're listening and you have a bottle, please let me know. I would be happy to taste it with you. (laughs) (laughs) So long as it does not turn out to be the billionaire vinegar. (laughs) Even if it does, to be that near that wine, I would be thrilled. Uh, Talk about, uh, there's a a lovely interlude in France, and like the people you were talking about, I'm a fan of Isabeau, Matthew's mother. Talk about creating her because she's not a very likable character when we first meet her. No, I think one of the things that I did in this book, I think a lot of the characters, even Diane and Matthew, are not exactly likable when you first meet them. You come to like them, which is true, I think, of many of our closest friends and the people we most love. Sometimes we don't immediately gravitate towards them. There's a little bit of a challenge there. And I, again, I just knew that Matthew's mother must be something else to uh, to have uh, raised him and to be somebody who he still quite evidently adores. Um, she's exasperating, but he adores her, and she loves him absolutely unqualifiedly. She just, you know, he is he is very very special to her in part because he has flaws. You know, these Matthew is not a flawless, romantic figure. He's got some pretty big flaws. So um, I had a wonderful time thinking about uh, who I could put into a room with Matthew and Diana that would make sparks fly. And when I thought about that, the character of Isabeau just took shape, this formidably elegant, formidably self-possessed, blunt, honest woman um, with a great sense of fashion, which would intimidate Diana to no end. Um, that I just knew that was his mother, and she developed from there. Is the, the castle where they live, is that a real place, Seven Tours? It, uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was cobbled together from a lot of different uh, castles from that region of France. Um, and it's not exactly any one of them, although there's a couple that are pretty strong contenders for it. The Auvergne in France is um, the central region of France. It's still quite remote. It was a very important region of France for a very, very long time, and kind of the central crossroads of the whole nation, and has fascinating legends and myths and stories. It's the land of volcanoes in France. So um, again, it is a very old, very uh, steeped in history place, and that I knew that that would be where vampires came from. Not everybody in this book is, partic- is somebody we particularly come to like. There are some fairly despicable characters as well, which we might enjoy in terms mm-hmm. of their uh, uh, ability, uh, competence at villainy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Gerbert is. Is that a real person, and did he really have this, the, the, the head that he talked to? Yes. Uh, Gerbert of Aurillac was, uh, was a pope. Uh, he was Pope Sylvester II. And if you, again, if you look up Pope Sylvester II, you will find that he was reputed to have been a great magician who had a brass head who spoke oracles. He was a student of magic and science. And there were, he was a great promoter of learning, but a lot of very dark legends circulated around about Gerbert of Aurillac. 
So, and he's from the Auvergne. So uh, again, it was, it was too much coincidence. He had to go in, <laughs> had to go into the novel. Um, and you know, there's also, uh, he fits into the logic of the story. You know, if they're in this remote place in France that has such deep traditions, that would be the kind of place where vampires would congregate and take root. And so um, putting, knowing that Gerbert was from the Auvergne, knowing he had this history of being fascinated with magic and science, it was, it was an inevitable conclusion that he should be in, in a discovery of witches. Uh, I love the sense of science in this book and the biology of the creatures, and especially that you develop it through the history of science from the the man, was it Herbert, who discovered the pumping of blood? And and then there was... The, Harvey. Harvey. And then, there were, and then the importance of, I mean, gotta love a book where the origin of species is a plot point. <laughs> and, <laughs> and big passages in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, big, with big passages in there. And uh, take us through all the way up to the DNA science of mm -hmm. witches and mm -hmm. powers. Mm -hmm. I, I love the scene with it where they're looking at the DNA. Yeah, well, you know, Diana asks Matthew, what, why do you do science? And he says, well, I want to know why I'm here, which I think is really the scientific question. All dis scientific disciplines in some way want to understand why we're here and who we are and how we fit into this larger world picture, whether you're a geologist or an underwater biologist. It's, it's all the same basic question. And... That would be a question that could keep you going for 1,500 years as you found new answers and discovered new answers to it. But one of the, as I was thinking very early on in the book, I realized, uh, I knew he was going to be a scientist and realized that uh, DNA research would be, have to be a really big threat to if there were creatures living hidden among us because as that scientific discipline grows so quickly by leaps and bounds, at some point, some scientist is going to make a pattern out of a set of anomalies and say, all of these people have the same blank. How are they related? They don't seem to be related. I mean, scientists love anomalies. And I thought, oh, Matthew's job right now is to be out in the front um, of that line of research so that he can um, you know, be ahead of the curve on understanding this. So that's why he has been busily collecting uh, DNA samples from other creatures so that he can try to put the pieces together before a human scientist beats him to it. And I love your, one of the things you do, the, the characters in this book, again, are really fun. And I love the uh, Em and Sarah, who for the big chunk of this book are characters we only meet over the telephone, yet we get a really <laughs> good picture of what they're like. Isn't that modern life? <laughs> yes, modern life. Right, we, we have friends on Twitter and Facebook and people who live across the country, and they all exist through the airwaves, yeah. Well, talk about uh, how much of these people did you know before you created them? And we eventually... Uh, get back to the, the Bishop household, and that's another lovely place. Mm -hmm. There's these three nice places in this book, mm -hmm. and it's so much fun to, you have a, books originally, one of the original intensive books was to be a travelogue. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. well, you know, it's perfection. We'll go here and here and here, and this mm -hmm. is what it's like around mm -hmm. the world, folks. You can't mm -hmm. can't fly. There's no Twitter. There's no TV. But you got these books. Armchair travelers. Armchair travelers. Talk mm -hmm. about the, your armchair travelers, because I think that's one of the pleasures of this book as well. It it really is a book that is intended to actually be experienced as a journey of discovery, in both the sense of journey and in the sense of discovery, and. Uh, and it's it's a it's not a book it's a it's a book to curl up with and in your armchair maybe with a glass of wine or a cup of tea or your favorite drink and and to really slow down for a little while and just be caught up in a story one of my goals I didn't realize it when I began, but by the time I was finished, I realized that all along what I'd been trying to do here was to create a fairy tale for grown-ups. A, a book that would work on our imaginations like the stories we read as children that were capable of just really catching us up, transporting us into another world, into another set of experiences, and that, um, but that, that would appeal to those voices in a grown-up's head that say, that can't really happen, that won't work. Well, what about this? So to make so it's hard to get adults to suspend belief for 579 pages. So uh, that that was really a goal. And and characters like Em and Sarah, I think, really help. They're so real, you really can't imagine a partnership like theirs. And with one, you know, slightly acerbic, bossy member and another kind motherly soul who's a librarian and they they get a they have their little fights they have their arguments with Diana and so really the the book is about relationships the relationships people develop um, and it it's a gradual unfolding of those relationships as as time passes well one of the things that's that's nice to see is the way those not just unfold, but the way they change. And, and I, so talk about creating the plot arc of this book, which I think mm -hmm. is really rich and satisfying. And it's beyond the revelatory aspect, which is was for me the primary reading driver to just, well, how is this world set up? How How is her version of our world set up? There's a, there's a nice plot in this book, too. Mm -hmm. And so talk about creating mm -hmm. that plot. And having it unfold at the pace you do. Okay. Well, I will. This is the first time I've actually talked about this. The uh, I conceived of the plot as standing in the same place. This is going to sound very, very arcane, but bear with me. There's a stage of the alchemical process called negredo. It lasts for 40 days. It's the period where you take um, a substance through. Uh, a, a very dark phase, which is why it's called Negredo, and that out of that will come the rest of the work of alchemy. So it's a kind of uh, a low point in the process. In the mind, and intellectually and spiritually, what Negredo stands for is the period of, um, uh, of darkness, of, uh, of misunderstanding that precedes enlightenment. So I knew it had to take 40 days, I knew it was going to start on the solstice because it has a lot of significance for witches. 
Oddly enough, that's exactly puts you at Halloween at the end. So the story about witches goes from the solstice, and that was another one of those moments where I just thought, ooh, spooky, that works out really well. If I started on Maybon and it's the 40 days of Negredo, we end up at Halloween, um, which is, is, you know, All Saints' Eve, um, All Hallows' Eve. So uh, I really, and I really did want to have a sense of, of dailiness in that time, um, in the alchemical work, what you do every night is essentially put your chemicals to bed. So there's actually a lot of just the routine of awakening and then sleeping. Those cycles is what uh, is what in chemistry we you know condensation, evaporation, recirculation, and that's how the novel was paced. And in terms of the plot arc, again, I I knew that this part of the story would needed to go through three movements, just as the larger story had three movements. And that each one of them would stand for a a big certain kind of discovery, would have smaller discoveries in them, and that it would be a process of uncovering and getting to know and being surprised by the love that you started to feel, the information you started to possess, the people you began to meet in this world, because that's real. That's life, right? That's how life happens. The, the challenge is to see if you can get it on a page. And, and I think you really do a great job of um, giving us the kind of information so that each revelation makes us look back and think back of what we saw before. Sometimes we know more than the characters do, particularly with regards to Ashmole. There's a couple of scenes where somebody's talking about it and they don't know what we know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's a a lot of fun. And and that's an interesting way of, you know, structuring the tension in a book of of, uh, trying to keep us to be engaged in the reader's perception. So as a writer, you're putting this together. This is not, this is a a pretty complicated book. How did you keep, give yourself as a writer the perspective of the reader? I think that comes from being a teacher. What you learn when you teach is that you have to kind of go back and remind your students of what you just told them 25 minutes ago, but not in a way that not exactly in the same way you just repeat yourself. You just need to kind of work in those reminders because they're building their knowledge of a subject matter. So with this book, this whole new world, I wanted to make sure that readers didn't get to the point and think, wait a minute, what happened here? So it is, and it, and it, is, it is chemical, it's circulation, it's this repetition that you do over and over and over and over again. Um, with slight variations along the way, and you make progress. So, you know, it really, um, I think that wasn't actually a thought through uh, in advance aspect of the plot. I think that was just me falling back on my teacherly skills and wanting to make sure everybody was always on the same page. Well, it's so interesting that this, um, as a work of fiction, has so many aspects of of alchemy. Mm -hmm. And how many alchemy, alchemical texts did you consult in the creating 
creation of this book. How many how many alchemies were? Committed? <laughs> there's there's now there's a the other thing I have to ask. There's a, an experiment that somebody does, mm-hmm. um, where they uh, it's a where they create a red tree or mm-hmm. something. Is that a real experiment? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh. You can actually you can actually find pictures of it online. Oh really? Yeah. If you if you um, Google alchemical tree, you will f- and images. You will find you'll see a picture of a glass. Uh, test tube with this tree growing that branches out from the metal (laughs) substances. Um, So, you know, it's a hard question for me to ask because really I've been studying the subject since I was an undergraduate. I took a Mm. course on alchemy when I was an undergraduate. So since that time, that was what, 1984, 1985, (laughs) I've read a lot of alchemy. And readers will be happy to know that um, I did not put all of it in the book uh, because uh, it's a very long and very rich tradition. But um, certainly uh, I do highlight some of the texts in there. I've been speaking with Deb Harkness. Her new book is A Discovery of Witches. Thank you for speaking with me, Deborah. Thank you, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.